So tonight what we're going to do is just um, talk about a little bit about sanctification. That's our next chapter in the Confession of Faith, chapter 13. If you want to just turn there, we're, we're only going to read the first paragraph in a moment. But um, what I want to talk about is sanctification, sin, and spiritual growth. And I've become more and more convinced through the years that God uses means in our spiritual growth. And those means are obviously Sunday worship. We talked about that last Sunday, the importance of public worship. But also fellowship, the ordinances, and also groups like this where men get together uh, to study the word of God, to labor together to pray for one another, and to grow spiritually. And so I want to emphasize that as well. So let's pray, and then we'll begin. Father, thank you so much for bringing each of us here safely. Lord, we thank you for gathering us together, and we pray that your spirit would be among us. We pray that you would warm our hearts where there is coldness, where there's dullness, Lord, that you would sharpen it. Lord, that you would make us vibrant for Christ, and Lord, that we would have a greater longing to be conformed into the image of Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that this time would be profitable for our eternal souls that we could sharpen one another, encourage one another in the faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So let's read uh, chapter 13, paragraph 1 together. <clears throat> and this is the chapter on sanctification. They who are united to Christ, effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, are also further sanctified really and personally, through the same virtue by his word and spirit dwelling in them. The dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed, and the several lusts thereof are more and more weakened and mortified, and they more and more quickened and strengthened in all saving graces to, practice, to the practice of all true holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord." So with, we're going to talk about this when we actually get into the, the chapter, which will probably be a month from now uh, with my Zambia trip, but um, we'll actually dive into this. But there's, there's a couple different aspects to sanctification. What are they? Regeneration. Regeneration. Okay, that precedes, that's the beginning step of our sanctification, right? Growing grace. Okay, growing. about like being set apart. Right. As one, and then like the actual process of being more and more Christ-like. So you're on the right track, right? So there's definitive sanctification. We have been sanctified, okay? Where it's, it's sure, it's done. It's just like our justification. That. Sorry. <laughs> uh, I thought the rapture was happening, but we already know that we don't believe in the rapture. So <laughs> that at least the secret rapture. Okay. Um, but also this idea of progressive sanctification, and that's where it real that's the nitty-gritty day by day, week by week, year by year of our spiritual growth in Christ. R.C. Sproul uh, has said, A static Christian is a contradiction in terms. Christ demands growth, growth to maturity, greater service, service and obedience. And so as we look at the Bible, we see throughout the Bible exhortations to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ and these types of exhortations uh, that Christians are to grow. And, and so how uh, does this growth take place? And also, what? And I guess one of the things I'm going to mention is the importance of our understanding what our union with Christ means. That if we've been united with him, that we will indeed grow. And so 
that's kind of where we're going. And so I just want to throw this out, the importance of men's ministry, obviously mutual encouragement, holding one another up, um, godly examples, um, coming alongside a weaker brother, all of these things God uses in our own spiritual growth. Um, leadership development is also an aspect of men's ministry, or at least it should be, um, but also the importance of sexual purity and uh, walking uprightly in a world such as ours, which is more and more depraved, as <laughs> it seems like every day, uh, there's something. And so Mark Chansky, um, in a really, really good book, says, uh, uh, Western culture has been bathed in the putrid, lukewarm waters and relativism, liberalism, feminism, excusism, bold mm. convictions have been demonized. True biblical image-bearing manhood has gone into hiding. This is his book on manhood. And so the idea that in our day that a man is a man of conviction based largely upon the word of God is completely looked down upon today. And um, so what are some, I mean, the, what are some benefits of accountability? And everybody knows what I mean by that term, right? Sharing openly with one another, with a brother, and for the purpose of prayer, uh, spiritual growth and you know overcoming certain sins what are what are some some benefits well hopefully um, accountability will lead to repentance mm. and not only repentance you know bringing about the change uh, looking to Christ and confessing sin think about confession as well confession and repentance is um, two things I think that shows growth and we acknowledge the sin that we've we've committed against God, and is willing to um, to confess those sins. Uh, that's um, a way in which God is growing us, because naturally we don't like doing those things. Um, naturally, we like denying it, and uh, it feels good to you know not to confess sins and to think we've gotten away with it, you know. But for us to really humble ourselves. Um, you know, that's something that the Holy Spirit is doing in us. And so you, you touched on something that's real important, and that's there's, uh, I mean, you touched on a few things, but one thing I want to key on is the, um, the, the place of admonition and exhortation mm-hmm. with a brother, because we might be blind to our sin. Maybe it's um, mm-hmm. speaking harshly to our spouse or something, mm-hmm. you know, at the end of a long Sunday or something like that. And, and, you know, it's an opportunity to say, well, okay, I can just overlook that, think the best, or to say, you know, I'd ask you to, you know, consider or pray about this, you know, uh, whatever. And so that idea of exhortation, admonition, coming alongside mm-hmm. to help point out sins, but also when you know that you're struggling with a certain sin, to come along to, to another brother and say, help me in this. I want accountability. I want you to ask me, mm-hmm. and those kinds of things. And so accountability is a preventative to sin in our spiritual walks and because if, if we're keeping everything a secret then there's no accountability right you're more the the, the, the temptation to slide into whatever sin it may be is going to be more prevalent but if you know you have that accountability um it is a preventative to sin and so therefore we must be there must be a willingness to be transparent um and so Every time we gather together, and especially we're studying theology, systematic theology in our confession, the goal isn't to gain more head knowledge only, 
But it's as like we've said, it's it's that uh, it would lead to doxology that actually upright Christian living would be the result in giving God praise, and so um, and, and the idea of learning how to apply the theology and practical Christian living. Um, sexual temptation abounds. This Allison Madison thing, thirty million accounts set up on that. You know, I I, I didn't do I didn't Google it. But when I was talking about it at family worship, I was telling my sons, I said, I, I don't, you know, I think there's only about 200 million adults in the U.S., you know, maybe 250. But you're talking like 12 to 15 percent of the adult population. And, you know, the housewives that you would never think anything of, the, you know, the upright businessmen, all of these kind of these phony exteriors. And then now there's iPhone apps for people that, want to remain anonymous, but want to hook up. And uh, one of them is called Tender. And apparently you can just scroll to the left if you don't like the way this guy looks. When you find the one you like, you scroll, whoops, the other way, whatever, I don't know. But um, And then you get the information. It, it locates, like, from your location, like, all these people that are ready to hook up. And, and people are hooking up multiple times a night and all of this. And, of course, this is just, it's the result of this, the... The, the way people are viewing what sexuality is it's, and, and everything that's going on with marriage in our culture is contributing to this. Marriage is being looked down upon, traditional marriage, you know, um, and so it's really grievous to, to consider that how, you know, it, and it's this whole porn, uh, you know, industry continues to grow. And men are enslaved to this. Enslaved. It's ruining families. It's ruining marriages. It's it's just uh, it's destructive. I mean, it's worse than any cocaine, heroin, crystal meth invasion, or any of that. Welcome, Tommy. There's a chair. Maybe you can squeeze in. And so this this whole idea of uh, people just being addicted to porn, and it, and it it really is. It is like a drug. It's you know whatever. I'm not gonna. The different one, different levels of porn and the intensity of violence and weirdness and all of that, it has to raise up just like a heroin junkie needs more and more to get his fix. And what's happening is you end, you're ending up with such demented, um, you know, mindsets and views of what sexuality is. And so, sadly, this has creeped into the church. I mean, 400 ministers had to resign last Sunday because they had accounts on this Allison Madison. And Southern Baptist ministers, okay, and um, that was through Ed Stetzler. I didn't verify that they actually did that, but it was estimated that about 400 Southern Baptist pastors' names were on that list that was released. And that's and only Southern Baptist. That's only Southern Baptist, exactly. Yeah. So, and then you know Tullian, who was at Coral Ridge, that had the affair. His wife had an affair. Actually, he said he had the affair because his wife had the affair, so two wrongs making a right. I don't know how a, a pastor would think that. but And so he's more or less fired. He steps down from ministry in June. He files for divorce last week, and now as of today, he's on staff at a PCA church as a ministry of develop, minister of development or something like this. Yeah. So this is, this is what's happened is we've lowered the standard of what Christian living is. We've lowered the standard of what human sexuality is to its just foulness. And then even in the church, it's being lowered. And so when we think of sanctification, um, some unbiblical approaches to it uh, that can hinder your spiritual growth is 
um, believing in mysticism, like that there is not some, that it's not objective, concrete truth, mm-hmm. deliverance type of thing. That if only I could be delivered from this sin. Have you ever heard that? Mm-hmm. I've got the demon of whatever mm-hmm. alcoholism, or the demon of the greed, or or if I could just be delivered. And that's really prevalent in Africa as well, um, mm-hmm. where I'm going. And so, but that that's a false view and self improvement f- uh, formulas, moralism. That if only I can just pull up, you know, uh, just do it myself, uh, being passive and so forth. So, so let's jump in. So thoughts on sin. Sadly, most Christians don't understand the depth of depravity of their own heart. And what I mean by that is even, even ministers, because these 400 pastors that had to step down um, and not having the right guards and the right accountability, and even R.C. Sproul Jr., had to step down or was suspended for a year because he visited this website. So, so there's got to be, you've got to have parameters and a principled, um, you know, as far as what you're going to allow yourself to do, there needs to be guardrails. As I like to use that illustration. Um, but even in the church, and when I say church, I mean the large evangelical, you know, broad church, you know, the whole idea of holy living is something that's just not talked about. It's how can you be happy, self-help, God just wants you to be successful, and five keys to a happy marriage, and raising children, and all of this. But there's, not, there's, there's less and less talk today in the church about struggles with sin and cultivating holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Um, and so... When people fall, you know, it brings shame to the name of Christ. And so a healthy understanding of the holiness of God is what's needed in the church today. Um, God says, be holy as I am holy, right? Um, Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, woe is me, I'm undone when he saw the vision of, of the glorified Christ. And, and, and so there's, that's what's lacking, a healthy fear of God. Sin is very deceitful. Satan's a, a master deceiver. He'll tell you just a little bit more pride, a little bit more lust is okay. Oh, a little bit more worldliness, you know, where you're, you're becoming more and more lax on your convictions and all of that. And I forget who it was, but one man said this, sin can be like trick birthday candles. You blow them out and smile thinking you have your wish, but then your jaw drops as they burst back into flames. And so the idea of thinking that I've done something good, I've conquered this, and, and, and suddenly it just bursts back into flames like the trick candles. Habitual sin can lead to despair, crippling guilt, where you're just plagued with guilt, your, your joy is robbed, your assurance of salvation is, is much less. And so how is a Christian man to gain the upper hand in this battle of sin? And, and I'm convinced that the means of grace are absolutely essential. The, the preaching of the word, uh, the fellowship of the saints under under the ordinances and and these types of things are essential and also just added on to that groups where there's if, if it's not a men's group where there's men getting together and keeping one another accountable and sharpening one another it's vitally important so most christian men that i know in reform circles want to change and grow in christ and so how does that begin and it begins with, and this is going to sound really basic, understanding and applying the gospel. It doesn't begin with the, the fundamental approach. You don't do this, 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 this. And therefore, it equates what? 
right? I mean, that's kind of the, the fundamentalist kind of type of approach. But it's, um, it begins with understanding the gospel. For example, you have Romans 1 to 11, 11 chapters of rich doctrine of who we are in Christ. And then he gets to the imperative, right? Therefore, right, live your, you know, your lives as living sacrifices before God. So too with Ephesians. I mean, Ephesians 1, that, you know, blessed chapter of, uh, you know, all of our riches in Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed you with every spiritual blessing, just as he chose you in him before the foundation of the world, and on and on. And then Christ, in him we have redemption, and the Holy Spirit, we're sealed. All of this is who we are in Christ. It's our position in Christ. And then he gets to, therefore, in chapter 4, verse 1, and applies it and drives it home. And so we need to understand, um, in other words, we need to understand the difference between the indicative, what we are, the statement of fact, um, and the imperative, that which we are called to do. So let's turn to um, Ephesians chapter 4. Um, he says in chapter 4 but you did not learn Christ in this way and then somebody want to read 21 to 24 for me assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God into righteousness and holiness. So, um, here we have that beautiful picture of putting off and putting on. And this is only, it's, it's, it's only after we understand who we are in Christ. Chapter, verse 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other. Why? Here's the motivation. Just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Uh, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God and a fragrant aroma. And then, of course, it goes on. Husbands and wives, right? And for 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up. So you see these motivations just as uh, these comparisons. So let's turn to Romans 6 now. Romans chapter 6. Your identity in Christ is the key to your sanctification. And this is the go-to chapter. Um, some think the, go- the gospel only applies to justification. I hear the gospel, I'm justified by faith. There we go. That's the gospel. But the gospel is vital in our sanctification as well. That's how we're going to grow in conformity to Christ. By the way, where is the first imperative in the book of Romans? Do you guys know? 6.12. 
Close. 6'11". Wow. <laughs> Good guess. I'm just reading it right now. <laughs> okay, yeah. It's, it's that even so consider yeah. yourselves or reckon yourselves, you know, dead to sin, but alive to God. So all of the rich, all of the, you know, depravity of man, depravity of the Gentiles, depravity of the Jews, justification by faith. And now the beginning of the sanctification section, it's not until here where there's an actual command. But the gospel is, is important in regards to our sanctification, and Paul brings that out. Of course, he tells the Galatians, are you so foolish, having begun in the spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? The gospel is vitally important, and some Bible teachers move too quick to the imperative without placing emphasis on who we are in Christ, because it's the gospel that relates to change. In other words, um, some sermons you hear are just the exhortations go and do, 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 but there's not the, wait a minute, let's, let's, let's set that in its context, because you are a child of the king, because you are sons and daughters of God, uh, because you have been made holy, because you are a new creature in Christ, now this is how those people live, <laughs> Right? It's not just these moral this, that, 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 so forth, the big list. All right, Romans 6. So let's look at verses. Paul anticipates an objection. Uh, we'll pick it up at 520. The law came in so that transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So essentially what he's saying is there's boundless grace so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign in righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How, or how shall we who died to sin still live in it? And so he anticipates this objection if salvation is, is all of grace apart from works, why bother to be holy and so forth and so on? And Paul sets that straight. The, the gospel, furthermore, um, rightly understood, this is what Paul says at the end of verse 2, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? it it's a contradiction in terms. That we've, we've died to sin. Why would we still want to live in sin? Just because grace is abounding. Uh, so he's anticipating uh, that change and and then I want you to see this here verses 3 and 4 of the first half of 4 or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his what death therefore we have been buried with him through the baptism into death through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the father so we too might walk in newness of life so there is the idea of being buried with him, being raised together with him. And then in verse 8 to 10, you want to read that, Mossy? Yes. Mm -hmm. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin. Once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. And so you see that parallel, and this is right before this imperative. Therefore, consider yourselves dead to sin. This idea that, okay, we've been buried with him into baptism. In other words, we die with Christ. We've been raised with Christ. 
um, we're united to Christ, verse 5, we become united with him in the likeness of his death. Certainly we shall also in the likeness of his resurrection. And then verse 10, the death that he died, he died for sin once and for all. The life that he lives, he lives to God. Therefore, if we're united to him, we too have died and we live to God. And then um, verse 6 and 7, we already read it. Uh, he, he who has um, died is freed from sin. And then in light of this, verses 12 and 13, um, Chris, can you read that for us? Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So is, you know, the word therefore, what's it there for, right? And so in light of all that he said, really in the entire book, but especially this chapter, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you obey its lust. Um, do not go on presenting the members of your body as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and members of instruments of righteousness to God. So there's something that's radically changed in us when we become born again, when we are justified, that we now have new desires. We're united to Christ. And understanding that I'm united to my Savior is will have implications on how you live your life. Um, thinking that it's just about my performance and I'm, I'm trying to, you know, my good works kind of thing. No, it's a proper understanding that your only standing is the imputed righteousness of Christ to begin with. You're united to him, therefore you're seen as holy already. But then how shall we then live, right? And the idea is that the power of sin has been broken. And that's what Paul's arguing for uh, in this chapter. In fact, if you look at verses um, uh, 15, or 15 and 16... Uh, we'll have Tommy read that if you got it. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you, if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Right. It goes on, Thanks be to God that though you were slaves to sin, you became obedient from the heart the form of teaching which you've been committed and having been freed from sin you became slaves of righteousness so he's turning this whole thing around formerly we're, we're enslaved to sin we're enslaved to Satan and obeying what he demands now those shackles have been broken now we're no longer enslaved to our, our sinful nature or, or Satan but now we're slaves of righteousness there's something completely different that's taken place within us and our wills and so forth. Um, Paul argues, actually, in chapter 7, um, in verse, he talks about the whole conflict of these two natures. And um, well, verse 12, so then the law is holy, the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. But he uses this phrase, I think it's, I can't remember how many times, it's been a while since I've looked into this chapter, but this it's you'll see it in verse 8 you see it in verse 11 i think it occurs earlier too but like verse 8 but sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me 
a coveting of every kind. What does the ESV have for that taking opportunity? Seizing. Seizing. Okay, yeah, that's that's a good translation. Mm-hmm. But it's the idea that that sin is 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 is, is taking control and springing forward in, in our depraved natures. But mm-hmm. but what Paul says, it's not that so it's not that the law's bad. He says, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. And then verse 14, I think we all know this context, but for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh sold into bondage. And Paul goes on to talk about this idea of the old man and the new nature uh, living in the same body and the struggle that's going on with sin. He says, the good that I would, that's I do not do, but the, the wickedness that I do not want to do, that's the very thing I end up doing, and there's this struggle. And, and finally, he cries out, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body, from the body of, the, of this death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, my flesh, the law of sin. And so it's this idea of us being shackled to a corpse in our regenerated lives because this old man is still there. And, you know, it's a lot of times it's just a corpse that you're dragging around, but every now and again it, it kicks and, you know, moves and tries to get the upper hand, right? And we have to subdue it. And, uh, but I, I love that. This should be the cry of every Christian man. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of sin and death? In other words, we should be sensitive to our own sin, uh, no matter how subtle it is, and hate it to a degree that we cry out with Paul, who will deliver me? Oh, how I long for that day to be delivered from remaining sin. Comments or thoughts on what we've covered so far? Great. Bodhi Bachman has a nice, a really good sermon on what is the gospel, and it was it kind of made a lot of sense what you were saying. Mm. Is he talked about how there's like this idea sometimes that people say, well, the gospel saves me, and then I need something else right. to get sanctified. And what he's saying is the gospel is all, it's everything. Yeah. And like you, you nailed yeah. that too. Exactly mm-hmm. what you're saying. Like if you don't have that foundational gospel and carry it through, it's going to lead to unbiblical yeah, understanding exactly. of, of how we live the Christian life and and so forth. Also, other things that other ways in which the gospel contributes to our sanctification, and we looked at this chapter last time, um, John 15. Um, in fact, let's just turn there. I'm going to reread the whole thing, but um, of course, we were looking at it in regards to His Word abiding with us. We were talking about Scripture memory last time, but we see here. This whole idea of I am the vine, my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it that it may bear more fruit. Um, Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. When you have this idea of abiding with Christ and and he goes on to say, in my word abiding in you. And so this is important also to our spiritual growth and um, an understanding of that. And also that if we are redeemed children of God, we've been given a ministry of some sort, a way to use our spiritual gifts. And so um, as we're bearing fruit unto God, um, that is, there, there's this greater fruit that's given. There's a pruning so that more fruit will produce, Right. And with that more fruit, there's a more conformity to Christ. There's a more assurance of salvation. All of those things that come with it. 
but you know the the branch that does not bear fruit if we're being stale or being dormant or being dead like a dead branch um, it's cut off it's thrown into the fire and so um, we need to be sure that we are abiding in Christ we looked just two days ago John 4 was one of our texts uh, the woman at the well Jesus answered and said to her if you knew the gift of God and who it was that says to you give me a drink you would ask him and he would give you living water later Jesus says in John 7 he who believes in me and the scripture from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water believing and abiding in Christ so the, it's the importance of understanding how the gospel applies in our position in Christ is going to be vital to our spiritual growth. And again, this is just all introductory bit before we really jump into the chapter, and we'll unpack some of that. Um, what I wanted to talk about now is just some false views of sanctification, which I think might be helpful um, for us and, and as far as, as we're thinking about these things. And so... Um, the idea of personal reformation, that it's just, okay, I have to do this, and, and if I do that better, then, then I'll, I'll grow in sanctification. And, and Pelagian, for example, had such a low view of sin that we were born sinless, he would say. Mm-hmm. Um, and that whole debate, you know, with Augustine, um, that somehow you could achieve moral perfection um, by using Jesus as an example, you know. Now... Is Jesus an example? Yes, he's an example, but he's more than that. He's a savior whom, whom I'm united to, and, and I depend on his righteousness and that righteousness alone. Um, Romans 3, you know, there's none that seek after God. There's none. I mean, we're really totally depraved, and we can't achieve moral perfection. Um, also, the, the sacramental process of achieving righteousness, what does Roman Catholic baptism teach? Infusion. Okay. Infusion of grace. What does that mean? Just get a little bit here and there and keep, <laughs> keep getting there. Baptism is that basically the original sin is cleansed at that time. That's right. So that's what they would say. So it is an infu- they would say an infusion of grace, but it also removes the original sin. And so the mere act of a man and you know, whether you know, whatever, in a position <laughs> um, I'm not convinced all Roman, you know, I mean no, never mind. I'm trying to stop there. But the, that a mere man, no matter how godly he is, has the power to remove original sin is like amazing, right? From a baby. From a baby, right. And of course, that's um, officially adopted at the Council of Trent, 1547, um, infusing into the soul, justifying grace, removing original sin, and grants the habit of righteousness. And in the end, sanctification is not based on grace in the Roman Catholic thought, but on what? Works. Human effort, right? Yeah. Works. The sacraments, basically. Yeah, those keeping the seven sacraments, uh, which essentially mm. are good works. And so it's a faulty, dangerous view of grace. And of course, we think of Romans 3 to 5, that we're justified by grace alone. I mean, that's a glorious, just a glorious doctrine. Some will teach that full sanctification comes by the second blessing. You ever heard of that? Yeah. Fred's shaking his head there. Wesleyans, Methodists, Nazarenes, even Salvation Army would would teach this. 
They agree that it begins with justification, but that it's perfected in the second blessing. And so what, is that, what does that look like in the Christian life? You're seeking the second blessing, right? It's like, I've got to get the second blessing. I've got to get... Yeah, that's, that's where it boils down to for some. Uh, baptism, West, like the, baptism of the Holy Spirit. Spirit. Baptism of the Holy Spirit and some of those. West, so they teach that, is that like step perfect? Like after you get that, you're perfected? Like you're, you're some do. So like uh, Wesleyan uh, perfectionism, mm-hmm. that you could actually attain a, a level of sinless perfection in this life. Is that is that even possible? I mean, yeah. does anybody think just in a... a sh- just minutely that that's possible just in this read Romans 7 I mean Paul was one of the greatest Christians ever and he clearly was never not even close to that well, well, they've got an that answer was, for that yeah yeah their answer is the, that, yeah, that, that was before, before he was yeah, yeah. I guess pre-converted state sure. so now I mean now that he's saved he'll not, he would never struggle with that that's what they would say but that's a low view of sin because then they, they probably think that some among them have achieved that and then they just I guess they see even if maybe they live very godly lives but they have a low view of sin that we're sinning even just because we're not glorifying God as much as we should in every second. So we they just they have a low view of sin. Yeah, and it's a low view of, of the holiness of God too. So it's lowering both of those things uh, to think that you can achieve that. Finney, of course, came along after the anxious bench and all that, but he taught that Romans seven was the stage one. Romans eight is stage two, or that second blessing. But again, we believe as we just looked at Romans 6 and 7 uh, and throw 8 in there that sanctification is a lifelong process of being conformed to Christ. Uh, Isn't Finney accused of being a heretic at one time? Yes. So you got justification here, instantaneous, glorification here, but then all, everything in between is sanctification. And so it's a lifelong process. It's not like, it's not these stairs where stage 1, stage 2. I, I don't know what the stage 2 is, the second blessing to glorification, but anyway. When Finney into decisionalism. Yeah, oh, very much so. And then the holy baptism, the way the Pentecostals or the Church of Christ and Assemblies of God uh, would say that, and some of these, like Church of Christ, would say that, you know, you have to be baptized in their church in order, yeah. Um, and then there's some that this is even more subtle, uh, even some dispensationalists would hold to this, that it's only when you fully surrender to Christ. And so um, you've heard of this idea that you can have Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why are you smiling, Sid? I just I've heard that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's so a that, final Christian thing? Um, I guess that would be related to it, right? Because if you have... So in other words, you can, you can experience salvation by having Jesus as Savior, but he's not Lord of your life. And he's, you know, if you... If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Like, well, there's all of these things, and so they separate the idea that you can have. Um, John MacArthur wrote a good book addressing that. He did. Yeah, the gospel according to Jesus. Right, it was on the whole lordship salvation debate of the '80s, and excellent, excellent book. One of his. That's being redone, by the way. Oh, I think they're going to expand it, and it's um, <clears throat> what Phil Johnson told me. Um, so anyway, some dispensationalists hold to this. The Keswick movement would hold to that in the late 1800s. It's also been called the Victorious Life Movement. There's all kinds of like Keswick books out there. Now, you know, I wouldn't say that these people are total heretics. I mean, some of them are you can read that are quite devotional. F. B. Meyer, you know, probably should be a name. You know, uh, Andrew Murray, 
uh, Scroogey uh, wrote a thing on the Psalms. I mean, these guys, these are some of the guys that, and of course, this is um, influenced by the teaching of the carnal Christian. Well, how do we make the carnal Christian fit? We've got unconverted carnal Christian <laughs> and Christian walking, and we would say, no, there's you're either out of Christ or in, a, in Christ. How about the focused living life? Mm. Mr. Warren. Warren. He's like gaining a lot of respect from the broader church again. He's like, I mean, that guy is invincible. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. Uh, what does it say? Second, well, we'll be in Second Timothy later this year, the whole book. But, you know, the whole idea of, uh, you know, they will accumulate for themselves teachers. Yeah. And, you know, that's, I think that's what's happening when you see what's going on with these C3 movements. And it's fleshly people accumulating teachers that appeal to the flesh. But can God send revival? Can God awaken those people? Yes, and amen. I mean, during Edward's time, the, the Great Awakening, I mean, it's the people in the church that were becoming converted, you know, and so these people that thought they were Christians, suddenly the God opened up their heart. And then, yeah. So as we grow in Christ, we want to always delight in the gospel. We want to cherish the gospel. We want to understand what our union is with Christ. We want to bear fruit unto his glory, and we want to grow to hate sin. We want to have the mindset of like Joseph did. Remember Potiphar's wife? And what did he say? He says, how could I do this great evil and sin against God? That needs to be our reflex, or like reflex, right? Uh, in our mind when sin comes to us. Um, there's no better antidote to sin than a healthy fear of God. Deuteronomy 17, they shall fear and do no more presumptuously. Uh, I think it was Thomas Watson that's talking about the men's hearts are like keys. I don't think they make them out of real brass anymore, but... Anyway, so picture the old style keys that would tarnish or be shiny. It says keys that are often used are very shiny, but if they are not used, they rust and they tarnish. Men's hearts are like keys. And so is your heart growing dull and rusty or is it shining brightly? And so those are things that we need to think about, examine ourselves about, keep the fire of devotion, you know, blazing hot unto his glory so so read chapter 13 meditate on this i mean it's very you could read it in about three minutes so read it at least once a week and think about it and and then we'll dive into this we will probably take at least two sessions on chapter 13 so we'll be be prepared for that